getting into the section of the book that has uh, obviously a lot of imagery and a lot of things that are could be very difficult to understand. Uh, and we're going to do our best to uh, interpret these for you this morning and moving forward into the book of Revelation as, as, the, as the imagery kind of gets more uh, complicated as we make our way through this wonderful, wonderful book that uh, it tells us so much about the world that we are living in today and what the world is going to be like in the future with the main character as it is here in chapter 5, being the Lamb who was slain before the very foundation of the world for our sins, Jesus Christ, of course. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the, the revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of, of the tribulation or anything else other than the revelation of Jesus Christ, like it says there on the screen. And today, as we move into chapter 5, we see this sealed scroll that is going to become really the focus of most of the rest of the book, what is, what is written in that scroll. So the title of our message today is Christ in the Sealed Scroll, as we continue verse by verse going through this wonderful book of Revelation. We've already seen uh, chapters one through four, that uh, is the, the entirety of the book is easily broken down based on Revelation one We've seen the things uh, which you have seen, chapter one, essentially a vision of the risen Christ, the one who is uh, delivering this message to John. And in the vision, we see the authority from which this message comes. It is Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And before Jesus gets to the future things, he gives uh, a message to John about the things which are these messages to seven literal churches that existed in the first century. And we learned all kinds of things there that uh, we saw that these churches 2000 years ago faced many of the exact same situations that we face today. It's also, it's very important to realize that in the book of Revelation, there is a blessing promised. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, there's a blessing promised to those who read, hear, and heed the things which are written in this book. And we've seen that primarily that blessing is there because Revelation is describing things that we already have in the Old Testament. You have to understand the Old Testament, in order to understand what is being talked about in the book of Revelation. One of the main problems that people have in understanding this book is that they think that it is a standalone book, that, that you can just start in Revelation chapter 1 and you really can just understand the entirety of the message and, and really nothing could be further from the truth than, than that understanding of this book it is not a standalone book it is it is they it is literally the bookend to the entire rest of the bible there's a good reason why revelation appears at the end of our of our bibles it is the conclusion of everything that we have seen throughout the entirety of the scriptures and so these messages to the churches are messages to seven literal churches secondary application to us today uh, we could take a lot of a lot of things away from those messages hopefully you got uh, half as much out of that as I did uh, studying studying that information he shows he shows these churches how to be blessed he shows them areas where they're falling short in their walk with the Lord and how they can overcome those those areas and that primarily is dealt with uh, considering our future with the Lord that he has for us. And then in chapter 4, we saw in the beginning, we saw John taken up to heaven, kind of miraculously taken up to heaven and given access to this scene that we're still looking at here in chapter 5 
today, and we saw that that's not necessarily the rapture of the church, but it, but it is showing, giving us a timeline. It is what, what theologians call a type of the revelation. It is a picture of the rapture. It is a picture of the rapture of the church. And we notice that that happens before the events of the tribulation are described, which we are going to see beginning in chapter 6. But before we get to that, we have to understand why those judgments, why this tribulation period is happening in the first place. And that's kind of what we see here in our passage this morning in Revelation chapter 5. We get an introduction to this idea of why these judgments are taking place. And here's our, I just kind of threw this in because we always have to have it. Uh, to lay out our timeline, uh, that, that uh, these churches exist here in the church age after the cross of Christ. You notice that this is in a parentheses. That's not by accident that there's parentheses around the church age because in terms of the entire message of the Bible, what we are living in is like a parenthetical interpretation. You know, we've got the whole big grand story of what's going on and then oh by the way there's this other there's this other part doesn't mean it's not important like like I've said before in uh, high school and that kind of thing I come having to do a reading assignment you come to the parentheses I'll just skip that move on to the next move on to the next part now those parentheses parts are can be very important the church age is very 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 important in God's overall program for the world for the world but that program in terms of all of the bible primarily involves one nation and that's the nation of israel because that is the nation through which god is bringing the savior into the world he is essentially saving the world through one man who comes out of this nation, that man being the God-man, Jesus Christ. And God, before he turns his attention back to the nation of Israel, he has some important business to be taken care of in the church age. And then he will take the church out after he is done uh, with them and with their role in his plan. He will take them out of the world Shortly after that, I believe there will be seven years, I believe, shortly after that. Uh, in other words, after the rapture, there's a short period of time, and then the tribulation period will begin that's largely described in Revelation 6 through 19. Christ will come again at the end of that when the nation of Israel believes in him, trusts in him to save them. He will come and save them, literally. Uh, physically and spiritually and then he will introduce his kingdom period to the world for a thousand years and then the eternal state described in revelation 21 and 22 so in christ in the scroll we're going to see the scroll the strong angel and the slain lamb this morning if we can make it through all this information uh, but we begin with the scroll, notice Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now the first thing that we have to address is this uh, term here, book. Uh, that's what it says in the NASB. Uh, and there are some issues with that. With that word, it doesn't change the meaning of anything or that, that kind of thing, but it's probably better to see that word there as scroll, which it says in the New King James and the King James Version gets it right. They have it as a scroll instead of a book. And uh, primarily the reason for that is that books like we we have, sometimes uh, you may see those referred to as uh, codex. Uh, a codex is a way that pieces of parchment were stacked on top of each other and then they would intricately uh, essentially thread them together with pieces of leather and that kind of thing to create something like what 
we know today as a book. And uh, however, that process was not really something that took place when John was writing this in uh, AD 95 or 96. And so chances are, when it says biblion, which is the term, it's referring to a scroll rather than a book, because they most certainly did have uh, scrolls at this time uh, in, in world history. So scroll, book, uh, it's probably a scroll is what, is what is being described here. That's why we call it the scroll. So, but first, notice, I saw in the right hand of him, of him who sat on the throne a scroll or a book written inside and on the back. It's important to understand who has the scroll. In the, it says, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. God the Father, in this vision that John is having, whether he's literally there, I personally think he was literally taken to heaven and is seeing God's throne room, essentially, and he's seeing God the Father on the, on the throne, something that we haven't mentioned that we get to here. Oh, by the way, we, we have God the Father on the throne. We have the Lamb slain, who is obviously, spoiler alert, Jesus Christ. And we also have the seven spirits of God, which we saw earlier, is the Holy Spirit. We have all three members of the Trinity here in what John is describing to us in this scene in heaven. But God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is the one who has this throne. And notice that it is in his right hand also. All of this imagery being very, very gives more depth to it if we don't just read over it oh he's got a scroll or a book whatever it doesn't matter in his right hand and he's sitting on a throne when we when we take time to kind of look into the details we get a little bit more a little bit more out of what's being said the right hand why is it in his right hand does it matter could it be in his left hand right hand sitting on a table next to him all of that is important it's in his right hand because the right hand is the position of authority and it's in the right hand of god the father psalm 80:17 says of god let your hand be upon the man of your right hand upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself the position of the right hand is one of of authority one of approval if you're at at the right hand Stephen saw Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father when he was being stoned. Acts 7, 56, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's interesting that Stephen is standing on the earth. The heavens are opened and he sees this same scene. Jesus Christ, God the Son, standing at the right hand of the Father. It also, when we understand what the scroll is that we're going to get to here shortly, we see that God the Father has this scroll in his hand, a very strong indication that he is the one who is doing this. He is sovereign over all of this, all of these events that are about to take place. So not only is it God the Father who has this scroll, it's in his right hand, it's at a position of authority, and he is most certainly the one who is in charge of what is about to take place. We also see that it is a sealed scroll. Now that's, uh, the imagery there is is important, obviously. It's a protected message. Uh, the, the commentators will point out that in Roman uh, administrative things, they had certain procedures for important documents that needed to be sealed to verify that it's coming from the king or from the Caesar or the, the ruler or just some authority. If it's a governor, he has a particular seal that he puts on a document to make sure if that seal is unbroken, well, when it's delivered to whomever the message is supposed to go to, they know that, okay, this came from 
Caesar because it has seven seals on it. Or this came from the governor because it has his particular seal on it. It can be then opened with confidence that it's coming from the one that it says that it's supposed to be coming from. And so commentators will point out that the, the wills of Caesar's the procedure was to put seven seals on the outside of the scroll. If uh, Vespasian or some uh, Roman ruler had his will, he would seal it with seven seals, similar to what we see here also. And when we, when we understand what this scroll is, it's a, a description of judgments. I'll just give it to you right now. The scroll is a description of judgments that are going to come upon the earth. It's very similar to what Ezekiel experienced in Ezekiel chapter 2. If you remember last time, we looked at Ezekiel chapter 1, where he had a vision that was very similar to what John is having, describes mostly the exact same elements when he sees God on his throne. Well, there was also a scroll in that uh, instance as well, Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, you can read about that. Uh, there is also a revealing to Daniel. If you remember Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he talks about receiving information. And then the angel tells him, no, don't reveal this. I've told you this, but I don't want you to reveal it right now. I think we're getting that in the book of Revelation. That information, maybe not, maybe Daniel didn't get all of it. Maybe he got more than what John got. Uh, but in large part, I think what we're reading in Revelation chapter 6 through the end of the book primarily is what the same kind of message that Daniel received but was told to conceal it. You see that in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, verses 1 through 13 all the way through. So what is what the scroll is not, I have here, if you can see that. Uh, and this kind of comes from Robert Thomas's commentary that he, he lists several of the ideas that people have about what, what the scroll is. And uh, a lot of that, a lot of this information is based on speculation not exactly what the text says. You have to kind of draw conclusions about uh, some of these things that we are reading here and then say, oh, well, that then it must be this, if this is happening. Speculation is something, that, particularly in the book of Revelation, that we kind of want to avoid doing. Not even kind of. Speculation is something we want to avoid doing when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation, we want to go to the text, see what it says, go to other texts that kind of describe the similar uh, ideas and come to conclusions based on what the text says, not what we're speculating about its outcome, its possible meaning in these kinds of these kinds of ideas. So one of the ideas is that it that this that the scroll is the new covenant. And there are, some, there are some issues with that. The new covenant was a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, Jeremiah chapter 31, that essentially he was going to forgive their, forgive their sins, give them the Holy Spirit, and essentially empower them to live during the kingdom period upon the earth. And now, so when we, when we look at what is about to take place in Revelation, we don't uh, we don't really see that being described more that the the outcome of what is being described in revelation 6:19 when we apply what the new covenant is then we can see oh okay here is kind of the new covenant coming into effect after these events take place it is a result rather than what's being described another possible ideas the assurance of the inheritance of the saints Ephesians 1 verses 11 through 14 if you remember our study of of 
Ephesians, you know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of an inheritance in the future. As believers, we're going to inherit something. Uh, it's, it's the kingdom and eternal life with God is what the inheritance is. And we know, uh, just like in life, the Bible, when it describes an inheritance, it's the same kind of idea as for us. I mean, how much work do I do to to earn an inheritance? None. <laughs> Somebody else does all the work. They earn all the money, and then it's gifted to me when they die. Exactly the same thing. How much work do we do to earn our inheritance? Zero. Nothing. We don't do any work. We trust in, rely upon the one who did all the work, Jesus Christ, on his cross, dying for the sins of the world. I trust in what he did, believe in what he did, and he gifts me the inheritance because I'm trusting in him. Again, uh, we don't see in the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 6 through 19, the gospel going out, people believing in, that's what the entire message is, and then they get an inheritance. No, that's not what we're about to see in Revelation here coming up. Rather, again, it's the result of the inheritance is the result of what we're going to see is taking place in this scroll. The book of life. Some people think that, oh, this scroll, this scroll is the book of life. And that, that sounds great. But what's the book of life? We've already looked at that earlier in our study of Revelation. We came to the conclusion that probably the most likely description of what the book of life is, that it is a list of names of every person who's, who has life, who's physically lives and so uh when we trust in christ we're given life eternally our name stays in the book of life if we physically die without having trusted in christ our name is scratched out from the book of life and we don't have eternal life with god anymore again that's not what's happening in revelation 6 through 19 God's redemptive plan is another possible explanation. This is the idealistic viewpoint that we've talked about for Revelation, that that this is just God describing how things are in the world over and over and over, uh, is the idealistic viewpoint. And uh, no, these events haven't taken place in the past. They're not taking place now. Therefore, they must take place in the future. It's not a description of how God is doing things over and over in the world. Another view that's very popular with dispensationalists is that the scroll is the title deed to the earth. And this is one that it has some validity. I mean, you can read all kinds of dispensational uh, uh commentaries on the book of revelation tony garland is one he has the uh spirit and truth is that his ministry spirit and truth you can read his revelation commentary it is outstanding he makes a case for this being the title deed of the earth and uh, and you read through it and he makes a lot of points but to me the points that are being made are that you're just kind of speculating that that's what this scroll is based on what is being described. What's being described is God essentially eradicating Satan from the world who is now the prince and power of the earth. Satan is the one who is kind of, as described in the Bible, in charge of this world. He led Adam into sin Adam lost the right to rule and reign that he was originally given. Satan took his place. I think that's pretty clear that that's the message of the Bible in early Genesis. In early Genesis, it also describes that that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan, and one day he will take rule and reign. And like we've said before, 
that's what's the events leading up to Jesus Christ coming again, establishing his rule and reign on earth is in large part what Revelation is describing. Again, the idea that the scroll is the title deed of the earth is the result of what's being described in Revelation 6, 19. It's not the thing that is in the scroll. Rather, it is the result. So what is it? What is the scroll? Hold on to your, hold on to your hats here. Buckle up. You probably can't even see it. It's too low on the screen. What the scroll is. The scroll is Revelation chapter 6 through 19 a description of the judgments that are taking place on this earth. I, you know, I, I'm not one for uh, uh, speculation and sensationalism and these kinds of things. And when we apply a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation to the Bible without speculating about what it is, Just reading it and understanding it in its plain sense, we come to the conclusion that the scroll is the events that are being described. That's what's written on the front and on the back of this scroll are Revelation 6 through 22. It is the tribulation period through the kingdom into eternity is what's written on this scroll. And so... Here's a, here's a slide to try to kind of try to depict what we are going to see moving forward. It's had, the scroll has seven seals on it. This, this slide's going to get more and more complex as we get into the, into the uh, description of what's happening here. But there's seven seals on the scroll. As each one is broken, we're going to see in Revelation 6 that, that a subsequent judgment takes place on the earth. A seal is broken, a judgment takes place. When we get to the sixth seal, there will be a break in the action. And there will be some information inserted in there that describes, I believe, that describes a lot of what just took place during this time period. You'll get more information about what just took place. And then the seventh seal will be broken. And that will unleash the seven trumpet judgments. Then these, every time a trumpet is blown, uh, another judgment will take place. At the end of the sixth judgment, there will be another parenthetical insertion here in this, largely describing, I believe, what's taking place during this time of the six trumpet judgments. If you want to put a a timeline on it, I think we've got three and a half years from here to about here. And then events at the midpoint of the tribulation take place here. The seventh trumpet is blown and seven bulls of judgment are unleashed upon the earth. The seventh bull happens. Jesus Christ uh, comes again to the earth and then the kingdom takes place literally upon the earth. So we have seven, so you can kind of think of it in a telescoping way is what, uh, how it's been described. Seven seals, telescope into seven judgment, uh, seven trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet judgment opens up into the seven bowl judgments. So that's kind of where we're headed in the information that is in the seven sealed scroll is all of these judgments leading up to the kingdom and the eternal state to follow. Next, notice that there is a strong angel here that makes an appearance in Revelation 5 and verse 2. It says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Notice that John says that I saw. John is an eyewitness to these 
uh, events that are taking place, to this scene that he is seeing. He's literally seeing this with his eyes. That's the second time that, he's, that he said in these two verses, I saw. He's, uh, he already said that in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. I saw, that, or he says, and after these things, I looked and behold a door open. He is seeing all of these things with his eyes, literally. Uh, this isn't a, a fictional story that he's just making up. He is literally, physically seeing these events take place, experiencing it uh, with his five senses and writing it down for us to be able to uh, take part in this same vision, if you will, or to understand what he, what he is seeing. He says, I saw a strong angel. So who is the strong angel? Boy, there's a lot of uh, speculation about this. There's a lot of speculation about a lot of what we see in Revelation. And uh, again, I, 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 maybe I'm going to burst everybody's bubble, but I'm going to go with option three. It's an unnamed angel. Though we don't know who it is. He's an unnamed angel. It might be Gabriel. It might be Michael. It might be somebody else. I'll tell you one angel it's not. It's not Satan. There we go. We can eliminate him. It's not him. Uh, but it's, it's some strong angel. Obviously, angels play a very prominent role in God's uh, plan for the world and things that are going on in heaven. That's very, very clear from the, the Scriptures. Gabriel we see in the book of Daniel, he's specifically named as doing certain things. He played a role in appearing to Mary and announcing the birth of Christ and, and, and uh, those kinds of events. Michael is the one who reveals the information to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. Another named, uh, very strong angel, obviously, a lot of power in the angelic realm. Uh, and he revealed... That's why uh, some commentators make the case, well, he's the one who's named in Daniel chapter 12. This is the information that was concealed, so he must be the one here who is making this uh, proclamation. Uh, well, that could be, and it might not be. There are, there are two other instances in the book of Revelation where the angel who's doing the announcing or uh, blowing the trumpets, pouring out the bowls, and these kinds of things. They're, they're not named, so we probably shouldn't uh, name them either. We'll just leave it as what the Bible says. It's just a, it's a strong angel who is, who is doing this. But what, is he, what does he announce? That's the more important thing is uh, sometimes we so, so much get bogged down on, on details that the Bible doesn't specifically address and you know uh and then forget what the message actually is it's more important to focus on what what's actually being said than who in this case than who is saying it he says with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals who is worthy to be able to do this? Who is worthy to be able to pour out all of these judgments upon the earth? Who is worthy to be the one who comes again and establishes uh, rule over this earth? Who's the one who's able to eradicate Satan from his position that he has now and be able to make this creation the way that God originally intended for it to be it's important for us to understand that God's kingdom is righteous like real righteousness physical literal righteousness upon the earth i i don't really uh care which well i do care but i do, it doesn't matter which political party is in office in the in the white house in terms of righteousness Neither one of them are righteous. Some are less righteous than others. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but they aren't righteous. They're not bringing righteousness to 
this earth. And that's what the kingdom is. Romans 14, 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Joe Biden is not bringing peace and joy in the Holy Spirit to the earth. Uh, no, no political candidate that we have is doing that today. Who is worthy to rule? That's what God's intention was for uh, mankind on this earth. If you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, that's why God put man on the earth. Man, humanity, we notice. Adam and Eve were given the, the position to rule. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make it man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them only two, only two options and you're either one or the other. You don't make the decision god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female this is the way we are created does it seem like maybe the culture is completely rebelling against the god of creation maybe Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis chapter 3, they lost that right to rule. They were uh, expelled from the garden. But there was a promise made. Genesis 3.15, that one day the seed of the woman would take this world back from Satan who had deceived them. But that person has to be worthy to judge uh, over this world. He has to be uh, worthy to eradicate Satan from this world. And John is seeing this from a human perspective, and he understands why he's weeping. He's realizing uh, this angel might search the earth high and low, and he's not going to find anybody to be able to do this. There is no one, uh, no human is worthy of opening these seals, looking into this scroll, carrying out these judgments that are to take place, and it causes him to weep greatly, bitterly. And uh, he, John was probably focused on a passage like Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. No one is worthy. We've all gone astray in all of those various uh, things that are said about humanity in general. Of course, the uh, rest of the news is that the, the, the good news is that there is one who is able to do it that we will get to uh, shortly. Again, here's our, here's our scroll slide. The, the scroll is this entire program of judgment, seals to trumpets to bowls, all being poured out. Who, who among us is worthy to do that on God's behalf, to institute this righteous kingdom, a righteous judgment on a world that so thoroughly deserves it, uh, on the head of Satan who so obviously thoroughly deserves this judgment. None of us are able to do that. Uh, religion isn't able to do that. Man's attempt to make himself right with God is so pathetic, so pitiful, uh, and is not worthy of what we see here in these judgments, of what is actually taking place. But the Bible, of course, is not religion. The Bible is God's solution to our problem, and we trust in what he's, he has done for us and what he will do for us in the future. And we see what he will do for us in the future beginning to take place in 
verse 5 with the slain lamb. Notice Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Praise the Lord that there is a slain lamb who is able to open this scroll. Praise the Lord also that there is an elder to remind John uh, of the truths that he already knew and he forgot. We were, uh, Dave and I were having a discussion this morning and talking about grace and how thankful we are for grace when we forget to walk by faith in our daily lives. And God, in his grace, gives us another opportunity to do that down down the line. And here I think John kind of wasn't walking by faith. He's literally in heaven with God, seeing this vision. And the question is raised, who's worthy to open this scroll? And we just kind of think, oh, you know, John, how could you be, why? Of course, it's Jesus. Of course, he's the one who is uh, worthy to do this. But yet, it would seem that maybe John is just overwhelmed by the circumstances, by everything that he's seeing, and he forgets. He forgets that, that, the, that there is a, uh, a lamb. Jesus Christ, of course, is the one who's able to do this, and he's weeping. But thankfully, there's an elder there to remind him. If you remember the elders... Uh, we determined are the church representing the church in heaven before the tribulation takes place. We saw that that the church or the elders they were dressed in white garments, which in the book of Revelation uh, several times says the white garments are the righteous acts of the saints. They are there on thrones, an indication that they are ruling with Christ. They have. Uh, crowns, crowns of rewards we saw. These, weren't, these aren't golden crowns, but the Greek term really is describing a wreath that's awarded in like the Olympic Games where they give wreaths to the winners. That's what these elders have on a pretty good description of church age believers and their rewards like we saw in Revelation 2 and 3 and that they will rule, that they have white garments. All of these the symbology that we saw in chapters 2 and 3 are contained in these elders in Revelation 4 and 5. And one of them is there to remind John of Jesus Christ. And he says, that first off, he says to stop weeping and then goes into this description of Christ. This believer, this elder believer knows Jesus Christ, he is a disciple of Christ, and he is ready to tell others about this truth. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Matthew 28 and verse 16. Uh, And that's the wrong verse that somehow got put on my sheet. Unbelievable. (laughs) Matthew 28, it's a, a passage that we're all very familiar with, Jesus and his resurrected body before the ascension he gives a charge to the apostles uh that yeah that that is the verse that i have written down uh revelation or matthew 28 and verse 18 jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth verse 19 is what it should have been go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit this elder was a disciple himself and obviously he's helping john in his understanding of who christ is he's kind of quote-unquote, making a disciple there. He's discipling the Apostle John and reminding him of who Jesus Christ is and the things that he is going to do. This is the the purpose of the church, essentially. Ephesians chapter 4, 
verses 11 through 13, if you remember, Paul tells the church there in Ephesus that, that God, Jesus Christ, has gifted believers with certain spiritual gifts, uh, pastors and teachers now for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This elder, again, another great indication that this elder is a church-age believer, reminding John, as we're going to see, of these church-age truths. Notice again that John is weeping here. He's weeping over the thought that no one is going to be worthy to open this scroll. The thought in John's mind, he sees this scroll. I think he has a good indication of what, of what it's going to contain, that it is how God is going to save the world, essentially, from the rule of Satan. And he's thinking nobody can open this scroll. That's a pretty depressing thought when you think of it. Life is just going to continue on and on and on. Could you? I can't imagine the state of mind of uh, an amillennialist, somebody who thinks that the book of Revelation is just describing how got the circles of life and we're just stuck in this forever and ever and ever, and Jesus is never going to come to the earth and literally eradicate Satan from this place and rule and reign over his creation. We're just, this is it. That's pretty depressing. I think that would cause me to cry as well. If there, if there isn't a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of Satan and we're just stuck here uh, with the hope of heaven one day, but evil is going to continue on forever on this earth, that's that's depressing to think about. However, there is something, someone who is going to solve this problem of sin in the world. That, that This problem of sin or the problem of evil in the world, it is one of the major obstacles for unbelievers, essentially, and sometimes even believers. Why, why does God let this happen? this particular thing. Why is there evil in the world? If God is so good, why is there evil? God is good. Evil is our fault. And God, in his grace and goodness, fixes our problem. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good God. Even though I may have cancer, I may lose my job, I might uh, lose my life, in a, I might fall off of a snowmobile and die tomorrow. Uh, and bad things happen, but God in his grace has solved my number one problem and I get to live with him forever, for eternity. That is a wonderful God and biblical Christianity is the only uh, quote-unquote religion with a solution to the problem of evil and it is this man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that John sees here that the elder reminds him of verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So Jesus is the one who will solve this problem. He is the Christ. He is the seed of the woman promised back in Genesis 3.15. And this elder reminds John of several facets of Jesus's character, several proofs that he is this one who is able to do it. Way back in Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 10, uh, back towards the that really, in terms of all of history, back towards the very beginning, before Israel was really even officially a nation with the law and in the land and all of these things, kinds of things, 
God promised to Judah that the ruler over this whole earth is going to come from your tribe. Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10. From your descendants, this lion of Judah will come. Notice also that he is the root of David. Not only will he come from the tribe of Judah or the descendants of Judah, one of the 12 uh, sons of Jacob or Israel, as he became known. He's not just going to come from Judah, but he's also going to come from the line of David. More specific information, kind of to use the term that everybody likes to say, drilling down on who is this Christ. He's not just going to come from Abraham, not just from uh, Isaac, not just from Jacob, but he's going to come from Judah. Not just Judah, but all the way down to Jesse and from the line of David. God promised that that would happen, that David would be his king, 1 Samuel 16. Uh, He is anointed by Samuel to be the king uh, in the land. And then God promised later, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, he promised to David that his throne would last forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That that necessitates a person who will live forever in order to fulfill that promise made to David. We call that sometimes the Davidic covenant, that the, the ruler will come from the line of David. That's what this elder is saying to John when he says, Behold the the root of David. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. We won't take the time to go there and read all that, but there's a lot of information there about the root of Jesse. The descendant of Jesse, David, is going to be the one who rules over the nation. But then more information. This one who rules over the people, he's, he's going to be righteous and just and, and uh, eternal, essentially. It, it has to be Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, the descendant of David. And he is, Jesus is the overcomer. He says, uh, the elder tells John again in verse 5, this... Uh, Lion from the tribe of Judah, this root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He is the one who overcame death, sin, uh, and every, every consequence of sin in his crucifixion and his resurrection. First John Five verses five through six, a passage that we've read uh, quite a few times. If you remember back to uh, chapters two and three, we had this term overcomer and, and a lot of speculation again about what an overcomer is as an overcomer, a faithful Christian, the one who really pulls themselves up by the bootstraps and helps old ladies across the road and just does everything right. Or is the overcomer the one who trusts in the one who overcame? Yes, that is who the overcomer is, uh, according to the Bible anyway. First John 5 and verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood. He, he was born uh, naturally and... He died for our sins. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Jesus is the overcomer. He is the one who crushes under his foot the head of Satan. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. We become overcomers when we trust in or believe in the one who overcame on our behalf.
behalf. But Jesus is the one who overcame sin and all of its consequences. That and the kingdom is righteous. That's why he is able to break open this scroll, break the seals, and institute the judgments that are that are found there because he is the one who is overcome. And that's described in verse 6, that he is the one who overcame. How did he overcome? Verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the world. The lamb as if slain. He did die, but now he's standing. He is resurrected. That is Jesus Christ. And he's referred to here, notice, as both a lion and a lamb, interestingly enough. John the Baptist referred to Jesus as a lamb. John 1.29, the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the lamb, took away the sin of the world by dying in our place, and he is resurrected. He didn't just die. He's not uh, a, a good teacher or a good philosopher and prophet who, who died, and, and he even gave his life in this great cause. No, that's not Jesus at all. He's not a martyr. He is the second person of the Trinity who paid the penalty for our sins and walked out of the grave, uh, accomplishing everything that that God the Father had for him to do. This is of preeminent importance for us as Christians, uh, for us as people. This is very important, not just as Christians. It is the message of Christianity, but for us as people, We must rely on the one who took care of the sin problem for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And if if we're not believing in that miracle, then according to Paul, we are still in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. He goes on later to say that we are above all people the most to be pitied. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, you know, oh, poor us. Man, we could be out having fun. We could be doing something else on Sunday morning rather than being in church. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that Jesus is raised from the dead. He is not in a grave. He is in heaven, standing at the right hand of the Father, receiving this scroll from God the Father in order to carry out his plan for the world. And that's symbolized in this this lamb. Notice, uh, I'm not sure that, that John physically sees with his eyes a lamb that looks like it had its throat slit or something like that and has seven horns and all of these eyes and this kind of thing uh, because he's describing Jesus Christ. And that's, that's, Jesus isn't physically a lamb with seven horns and, and all of these eyes. He's Jesus. He's a, he's a man. I don't know exactly what he looks like one day i will one day you will if you if you are a believer you will see him face to face that's that's our hope we will get to see jesus physically who he actually is but john here is rather using this symbolic language to to give us more information about who who jesus is and so it's, he describes him as, as having seven Horns, and that's very much a description of the fact that, that Jesus has all authority. That's why we read Psalm 2 this morning in the call to worship. Matthew 28 and verse 18, we read that earlier. Jesus came up to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. That's symbolized by these seven horns. 
uh, John 17, in this Jesus in his high priestly prayer in the upper room, he talks about God the Father having given him all authority. Notice also that he has seven eyes. Now we don't, again, here's a great example. We don't need to speculate about what the eyes are. It tells us exactly what the eyes are, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And we had that same imagery earlier in Revelation, the seven spirits of God. And we saw that that was a representation of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And notice that that he is sent out into all the earth. Well, here's more, more evidence that, yeah, that's describing the Holy Spirit because that's exactly what Jesus promised he would do also in the upper room. John 14, Jesus speaking to the believing apostles there in the upper room before his crucifixion. He says, verse 16 of John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And this is the spirit of of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Romans 8, 9 makes that uh, comparison with the, the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Christ kind of being synonymous terms, uh, Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Those are, those are very synonymous terms. The Bible, Paul describes Christ being in us and us in Christ, the Holy Spirit permanently uh, dwelling within us. This is the mark of a Christian in today's world that we are living in. And that is who John sees here with Christ, the Holy Spirit who has been sent out into all the world. Peter says of this, 1 Peter 1.10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, in other words, Old Testament prophets and uh, those living in the time of Christ, they came to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ being synonymous terms, that's why it's, it's kind of hard to distinguish the lamb here from having the seven eyes. The lamb and the eyes, they're part of the same being. There's God the Father there also. Part, it's the same God in three persons. Kind of hard to distinguish among the three. That's on purpose because it's one God in three persons. God the Father holding the scroll God the Son, the Lamb, pictured as a lamb and a lion who is able to take this scroll out of the Father's hand and open it. In the Holy Spirit, there is also a witness to this, this one who has been sent out into all the world. And that that is as far as we'll get today. Next time, we'll get some more information about this, this scroll and and its opening and the worship that takes place before that happens. But for today, we've seen the scroll that is a description of the judgments that are to come, this strong angel who is making this announcement. We saw the elder kind of discipling John, even John the apostle, one of the inner inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples. That That ought to give us some hope in this world. When we fall short, oh, we can return to the word and uh, we can understand that, uh, yeah, of course we fall short because we aren't worthy. We aren't the one who overcame the world. Jesus Christ is the one who overcame and it is in him that we have this great salvation because 
He did it all for us, and he offers it to us by way of faith. And let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we've been able to look into this morning. I thank you for this vision, this experience that John had in going to heaven and seeing these incredible things so that he could record them for us. And I pray, Lord, that as we go through the trials of life, that perhaps you could bring some of these scenes to our minds, that we can be reminded that the world isn't about us. It's not about our uh, petty problems and these kinds of things. This world is is here for you, and it is for your glory. And one day you are coming again to set things right. And I just pray that you would help us uh, each moment of the day to rest in that truth, rest in the things that you already have done for us and dying for our sins, and that we would just uh, walk by faith in you moment by moment. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you freely offer to the world. And you can freely offer it because you did all the work. And I thank you that you have made salvation as simple as just trusting in you, that you haven't made it a complex set of procedures that we can't, just can't know for sure whether, we're, whether we've really done enough. But instead, you've shown us in your word that you did all the work and we just need to simply rest in what you've done for us. And I pray that that truth would uh, change us, change our thinking, change our attitudes, change our attitudes towards others and change our attitudes towards our, ourself. And most importantly, change our attitude towards you and who you are, how great you are, and the great things that you will do in this world in the future. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.